Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. I'm glad you're here today. I'm thankful that you chose to get up this morning and look at the radar and bring your umbrella and come to church. And uh, hopefully some folks helped you to get in dry and they'll help you get back out. Uh, but I'm, I'm so thankful that you chose to come and be here. Uh, I think you made a good choice. And uh, today we've already experienced so many great things as we've worshiped together and spent time in prayer. And our kids upstairs are just having a great time learning about the love of God. And so I'm thankful that you're here. There's so many great things that have been happening over the last few weeks. It seems like this last Sunday of March, we're almost a fourth of the way through the year. That's crazy because it feels like we just had 21 days of prayer in the deep change series and our family series and like it just it feels like time is is speeding up and uh, so many amazing things have been happening and some of you have joined us just for the first time in this first quarter of the year. Uh, but just a, a lot of great things as we come together to know God and to find community and really to discover our purpose and make a difference. And last week, uh, we had like 50 people stay after for lunch for training for our G Kids ministry. And we had people in Discovery Track last week. And uh, in this service, now not necessarily today, but in this service, we had to bring out chairs last week. And so uh, I told you a few months ago, we needed some of you to move from the first service to the second service. And you did awesome. Now, maybe some of you could move back is what I'm telling you. But uh, no, that's all right. Uh, but it makes me so excited about Easter that's coming in just a few weeks. Easter's one of those Sundays that people will just come to church, even if they don't normally do that. And so I encourage you to be praying about who you could invite to come and be with you in church uh, on Easter weekend here at Generation Church. We're going to start on Friday night, our Come to the Table event. It's not a somber event. It's for us just a reflective event, because we know that Sunday's coming. But we want to reflect on the, the sacrifice and the submission of Jesus Christ. And it's always a really special time. All we ask you to do to help us plan because we transform the room and we give you some things to kind of hold throughout that time on Friday night is just to register on our website. It's free. It just helps us plan. So I know you're like, well, we don't register. Please do. That helps us so much. But it's open now. You can go to the website and register for Come to the Table on Good Friday. And then Easter Sunday, we start out on the lawn, sunrise service. Some of you haven't seen the sunrise in months, but we'd love for you to come and be here on Easter Sunday for the sunrise celebration of Easter Sunday. And then we'll be in the room at 9 and 1030 to celebrate Easter together. So again, I want you to pray about it. Who could you invite? Who could you bring with you and come and be with us on Easter Sunday? And then one other quick just thing that I would want you to be a part of is this coming Saturday. It's our first Saturday prayer. We have it every single month. It actually falls under our G Groups ministry. And we have a great group of people that gather for prayer. But uh, we're, we're opening it up. You don't have to be a part of the group to come Saturday. We're going to pray for the needs of our church for sure. But we're also going to pray for Easter. And so I'd love for you to be with us this coming Saturday here in the worship center at 8 a.m., uh, and uh, just, just come together for a time of prayer. Last week, we started uh, a new series called Journey to the Cross. And I told you that we were really preparing our hearts for Easter, but we were also looking to who Jesus was when he was on the earth, who Jesus is now, but how he journeyed to the cross. What did he do? How did he spend his time? And so last week, we talked about the idea that while he was here, he loved people, he healed people, and he saved people, and he's still doing that Today, we also gave you a new SOAP guide, that's scripture, observation, application, and prayer. We just, we put some together, our team did, put together some scriptures for you to read that uh, really helped to encompass the journey of Christ to the cross. And if you didn't get one last week, you can pick one up at the Information Center today. Just read with us those events that lead towards Easter and, and the Passion Week. But uh, today, we're going to look at a little different angle on this story. Last week, we talked about what did Jesus do, and we'll look a little bit of that today as well. But what, what did the people around him see him doing that just aggravated them? 
right? Last week, I don't always give titles to my sermons. They, they always ask me, what's the title? I mean, sometimes I definitely do, but last week we said was the Christ of the cross. Like, what did he do? Today, the title would be the crimes of the cross. Like, what were those things in the natural, on earth, that he did that got him in trouble and eventually got him arrested and sent to the cross? We believe he was on a mission from God. We believe he was sent here and he knew from the day he arrived or or his awareness in human form that the cross was before him. We see that play out in a couple of the gospel uh, experiences there. But, But just the earthly side of his arrest and the cross, like, what did that look like and how did that actually transpire. And so I want us to, to kind of think through that today. What were those things that got him arrested? What did the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these other religious leaders see him do that just aggravated them? And, and so we want to talk about that today. The first thing that we see, and you got to buckle up because we're going to cover a lot of ground. The first thing that we see is that he made them uncomfortable. He made them uncomfortable. You, you might say it this way. He threatened their religious system. He threatened their, the system by which they had been used to living He threatened that. He challenged that. He made them uncomfortable. He starts to ruffle their feathers pretty quickly during his ministry on the earth because most of the people who got upset with him were these religious people, these people who were accustomed to being governed by and striving for perfection under the Old Testament law. Now, he he did set the record straight, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, that he didn't come to do away with the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill it, but they didn't like that. They didn't like that of the 600 plus laws that they had been given to live by and to help set them apart and to find righteousness with God and right standing with God, the sacrifices and all of the various things that if they broke the law, they were supposed to come and present something and offer sacrifice and and do those things annually as reminders. And that's how they, they got kind of in right standing with God and with his people. And that's what righteousness looked like. But when Jesus showed up, he starts to challenge their assumptions and challenge those ideas. And he says to them, listen, the law does exist, but it is not sufficient for you. He doesn't say that it's wrong. He just says it's not sufficient. There's still something lacking, but that lack is me. You need me to be sufficiently righteous before God. He kept reminding them that the law cannot by itself save you. So let me give you a great example of what I'm talking about. This is in Matthew chapter 12. We're going to spend several minutes here in Matthew if you want to go there. That's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, it says this, going on from that place, he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something that takes place here. Right up at the very beginning of what we said, it says, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him. There was a trap that was set. Now, they did this a number of different times. They would set a trap. They would ask him a question. They would bring him into a situation where they would bring the law to him to see how he answered. Because if he answered incorrectly, then he actually was coming to abolish the law or to say that the law was wrong. And that would give him, that would make him guilty. So they set a trap for him. He responds in only the way that he could. And he he challenges what they thought. And he asks them a question. And he heals someone. And, and then afterwards, they, they decided, okay, we've got a plot here. We've got to come up with a plan of how we might kill him. He, he, he says to them, listen, the law was a means to an end, but I'm here now. Like it served a purpose, but I'm here. I'm enough. I came to heal and to help those who were sick. They wanted to be governed by the law. 
He wanted the law to guide them to him. And there was this, this challenge that he was creating for them as he, as he kind of went against the status quo. And, he, and he's, he's trying to help them to lean further into who the Father has asked Christ to be for them. And, and they just can't accept that. There's a system that they've been governed by, that they've lived by, and he's threatening that. And he's making them uncomfortable. And when people get uncomfortable, not just these people, some of us people... Sometimes we tend to lash out. Sometimes we tend to project our anger onto someone else. Another place that we see this play out a number of different times, we're staying in the book of Matthew, but you can go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first public ministry, first kind of sermon of Jesus. This is the the place where he kind of introduces himself and his his theology and the things that he wants us to know. And he wanted these people to know about the Father and about the kingdom of God, this this countercultural kingdom that he was calling us to. Something that didn't necessarily make sense in an earthly kingdom mindset, but in a kingdom of God mindset, he wanted us to understand how we should be governed and how we should be guided in the way that we live. And this is what it says beginning in verse 21 of Matthew chapter five. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now we're gonna see this over and over and over. There's a pattern here. You have heard it said, but I say. He's saying to them, the law tells you, the teachers of the law tell you, but I say as the son of God, here's what I say, here's what the kingdom looks like, here's what the law said, here's what the kingdom says. And again, and again, we're going to come back to this, I keep feeling the need to justify it. He's not saying the law is no good, he didn't come to abolish it, but he came to fulfill it. He's saying, hey, when when you say don't murder, which by the way, we're good with that, let's keep that one, that's a good one, a rule for all of us to follow. No murder. Got it. I've checked the box. All right. But he says there's actually something beyond that because so much of the law was about the external, right? So much of the law was about your actions and your behavior and and what you did with your hands, what you did with your, your time during the day. But what he was calling them to was something on the internal. We started the year with that with our deep change series, that there are some attitudes and beliefs and desires on the inside of us that actually create that external behavior. But the law was about what you did and how you interacted with people and the behavior of your life. He says, you've heard it said, don't kill anybody. That's a good rule. But I'm saying that if you open up your heart to anger towards someone, you are on that path. Now you're like, well, I've been angry with a lot of folks today. I hadn't killed anybody, right? But the idea here is that there is something in, in our hearts and in our lives that, that if we allow it to take root, it does develop behavior externally that does not reflect the heart of God. And what we have to do is before we ever get to the end of that road, let's get to the beginning of that road and let's, let's allow the Lord to shape our hearts and to challenge us about the things we should think and the things that we should feel and make sure that our, our attitudes and our thoughts and our behaviors actually reflect the direction that we want to go. You have heard it said don't murder, but I'm telling you, don't even get angry. How do you process what you're feeling that doesn't lead towards something that's destructive in your life and in someone else's? Verse 27 says this, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He said, there's something externally that you've been trying to avoid. I'm telling you to protect the internal." to to guard your eyes and guard your ears and guard your mind. I'm telling you, there's something that happens on the inside of you that may eventually lead to the external, but let's deal with it before it ever gets there. You've heard it said, but I say, he's challenging their thoughts. Verse 33, again, you have heard it said, do not break your oath, 
But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You're like, what? I don't think I've ever read that verse. Can I go back to my mortgage company and take all my signatures back? I don't want to make a promise. I don't want to make an oath. But the idea here is that not just would we not make an oath externally, how do, how, what does our character reveal about our word? Right? This is saying that, that from time to time, people would begin to swear by certain things. And when you're trying to convince someone that you're telling the truth, you begin to escalate what it is that you swear on or swear by that, that would give validity to your statement. He's saying, listen, don't even live the kind of life where anyone could question your word. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't, don't worry about all of the external things. Let's deal with the internal things. Let's be people of integrity and character. You've heard it said, but I'm saying there's something deeper that you're called to. Verse 38 says this, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Just a challenging thought here is he says, listen, I'm calling you to something deeper. I'm challenging your assumptions about religion, and I'm calling you to this relationship where you would develop my character and what God is trying to do in and through your life. I remember when my brother and I were teenagers, I was a little bit older and was moving away, and the youth pastor at the time at our church was teaching them out of this passage. And one day, Jason was in, in PE class at school, and he was playing badminton. He wasn't like a professional badminton player. It was just what they were doing during that week of PE. And he was you know, trash-talking. That's something he tends to do from time to time. And he was getting a little confidence, a little arrogance. And there was another guy. I mean, this might sound like the stupidest thing to ever get in a fight in at school, but they were fighting over badminton. And my brother beat this guy, and so Jason goes and sits down on the front row of the bleacher, and the guy comes up, kicks him right in the face. My thought is, I'm going to kick him back. I'm going to throw my badminton racket at him or whatever. And Jason said, the night before, my youth pastor preached on this. So I thought, I think I'm supposed to let him kick me in the other side of my face. (laughs) I thought, well, you're closer to heaven than I am. Because that's not how I would have responded. (laughs) But it's like you're constantly being called to something more. To something. How do you respond when somebody cuts you off in traffic? Yeah, I didn't get nearly as many amens right there. I mean, it's just like... What does the kingdom of God look like in everyday life? It looks like not just the external behavior, but the internal thoughts and attitudes that we have. Verse 43, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? He said, you don't get credit for loving people that love you. It's like, how do you respond when you know someone hates your guts? How do you respond to people who believe completely differently than you believe? How do you respond when someone is actively working against you and all of your efforts for good? Like, if you love those people, if you respond with kindness to those people, like, that's what I'm calling you to. Not just the external things, the internal heart attitudes. I'm calling you to something else. We are not saved through works. This doesn't make you more saved if you do this. It just means that we are actively asking God to work in us. And he was just challenging their religious system, making them uncomfortable every single time, challenging what they thought. And and if you read through this and you hear these words, maybe you've read them a hundred times before, you know, sometimes you can look at it and go, well, how did the religious leaders miss it? Like, why were they so angry? If I was there, I would have been one of the disciples. Eh, maybe, maybe. Can I be honest? I might have been in the crowd of the religious leaders, 
Because he was challenging what it looks like to be a good person. I strive to be a good person. And if this guy shows up and tells me that I'm getting it wrong and I got to do something different and this is different than my parents taught me and the different than I thought it would. No, no, it's like, hey, what is he calling us to? What is my relationship with him challenging me to do? How, how can I discern what the spirit of God is asking of me in my life? He takes it one step further. I've already referenced this in Matthew 5, 17 when he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. If he would have stopped there, it would have been fine. I think the religious people would have been fine with him. But he goes on to say this in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. He just challenged them. He says, hey, you want to get to heaven? You got to do better than the people who think they're doing pretty good. And it's not about your actions of good that will earn you heaven. It's about our heart and accepting the principles of the kingdom. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. So what are you going to do with me and what I'm calling you to? Here's the second thing that got him in trouble. He loved people they didn't like. He loved people they didn't like. He socialized with sinners. The Pharisees hated that Jesus spent time with the people they didn't want to spend time with. You think about the group of people that he recruited to be his disciples. A lot of them were not the people that you would have chosen if you knew you had three years to invest in a group, and then you were gone, and those people would be left to expand this global ministry, right? But Jesus, he picked some like tax collectors and some you know, like not so great, you know, marketers and people whose faith was lacking. And some of them were very young. And, and, and just based on the culture of that day, I'm not trying to add to scripture here, based on the culture of that day, some of the ones that he picked probably would have been the Pharisees, but they failed out of rabbinical school. What happened is these young men would leave kind of the vocation of their family and they would go and become a disciple of a rabbi. And they would follow in the teachings of a specific rabbi and they would listen to what he taught and how he interpreted the law. And so if they could understand it and grasp the law and, and live the right way and honor that rabbi, like that they could become one of these Pharisees and religious leaders and the teachers that we read about in the gospel. That's how those people got those roles. But because they were fishing when he found them, it probably indicates that some of them had tried that and weren't good at it. And so now this rabbi, this teacher, is calling them to come and follow him and to take on his yoke. The yoke would have been his teaching. Take on his yoke to say, hey, here's how I'm teaching the kingdom and teaching the gospel. Come and follow me. But they had already tried that. And so now he invites them to come and be a part. Like the, the Pharisees hate it. It's like that's the guy that failed out of school. That's the guy who wasn't smart enough or good enough or faithful enough. That's the guy. Have you seen what he does for a living? Like... The Pharisees, the religious people, they hated the people that Jesus spent time with. But Jesus also went out of his way to include those who were overlooked by society. Look at this in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, some of you are singing the song in your head right now. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. 
Zacchaeus, who was wealthy, goes on to say, I'm going to give away half of my possessions. And Jesus responds to him, and salvation has come to your house today. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Tax collectors were looked down upon. They were considered greedy. They were just considered to be like the worst of society. And Jesus goes to eat with him and declares him to be saved. And the religious leaders were furious. They could not imagine that this is who Jesus would choose to spend his time with. And Jesus responds to Zacchaeus when he says, hey, I'm going to give away half of what I have. Jesus responds, I don't know if he said it loud enough just for Zacchaeus or if he said it loud enough for the whole crowd to hear, maybe even some of those religious folks. But he said, hey, I came to seek and save the lost. It's like this is, this is the guy that represents who I was sent here for. I don't know why you guys are so upset. Now, I'm definitely adding to scripture right there. But maybe his tone indicated that. That's how I would have said it. It's like, would you guys relax? This is my mission. This is, this is my guy. This is the target, the kind of people that I was sent by the Father to come and to save, to seek and to save the lost. One of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels, it's found in a couple of different uh, of the Gospel accounts and various different details that are included there. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 39 says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so just pause for a second and recognize he, ha- he did have dinner with religious people. He wasn't avoiding them. He didn't think they were terrible. He loved them too. He spent time with them too. To have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus tells Simon in this story that this woman is just thankful for grace, that her response is out of the overflow of her heart in worship, and that because of what she's experienced of the grace of God, she can't help but respond in some type of worship. It was a moving moment Unless you were in the room and convinced that that kind of woman is not the kind of person Jesus should have anything to do with. Other than that, it was a really moving moment. It was this powerful depiction of someone responding to grace. And if you have the kind of story where you know, I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead, but because of Jesus, now I'm alive. Maybe you had some moments where your worship was a little more outlandish and exuberant and the testimony and the way you shared the story, it made some people uncomfortable. But this woman didn't care. She just had to get to Jesus and thank him for grace and thank him for forgiveness and thank him for unconditional love. And that kind of worship made religious people uncomfortable. And can I just say to you, my heart for this place is that we would never become the kind of people who are uncomfortable with sinners that want to praise Jesus. Right? We, just, we don't want to become the kind of religious people that are too good for sinful people. Because if we do, it means we've forgotten that we too were once sinful people. And we never want to get to that place. You never want to forget who you were. And maybe you've convinced yourself that you weren't that bad off. You weren't that lost before he found you and rescued you out of the mire and brought you into this place that you could not earn 
right standing before God because of the grace and mercy and love of Jesus. Never let us become so religious that we lose our grace and our love for the kind of people that God loves. I heard a study a number of years ago that after someone has faithfully been invested in a church for more than five years, more than 95% of their close relationships are with people within that church. Now, that's not bad in and of itself. We want you to come here and to find community. But is it possible that when the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, that there's actually plenty of workers? We're just all hanging out in the barn together. Could it be? Could it be that we have gotten off mission and forgot that God has called us to model our lives after his life and to be on mission, to go into all the world and to share the gospel and to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Could it be that there are plenty of workers for the field of the harvest, but we're just all hanging out together and missing our moment, missing what he's actually calling us to do? I remember when I was a younger man sitting in a service much like this and the pastor I was preaching that day, he asked this question. He said, if Jesus were walking on the earth today, who do you think he would be hanging out with? And the answer that he gave that day is not as important as maybe you pondering that question for a few hours or a few days this week. Like if Jesus were walking on the earth today, where would he be spending his time? If he came to seek and to save the lost, I think he would be hanging out with Pharisees, eating at their house for sure. I think he would also be in some places that you would never find yourself. I would never find myself perhaps. But he said, hey, I came not because I'm too good for anything. I didn't come for well people. I came for sick people. I didn't come for found people. I came for lost people. So how do we live within the mission that God has called us to live? And all of these things I believe to be true. That he made them uncomfortable. He challenged their religious system. That he loved people people they didn't like. That he socialized with sinners. I believe those things to be true. But the one thing that really got him in trouble... The one thing that he just never got away from talking about that they hated that he talked about was that he claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be their savior. Look at this in John chapter 14, verse 5 and 10, 5 through 10. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him as you have seen, and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the father living in me who is doing his work. There is no wiggle room here. He didn't give us choices and options, not a multiple choice test. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot get to God the Father unless you come through me, Jesus the Son. And then when he was questioned by Thomas, he took it a little further and he said, how can you observe me and listen to me and doubt that the Father and I are one? And this is the crossroads for all of humanity. That you come to at some point in your life, and I don't think you just come there one time. I think you may have to come there over and over and over and over again to actually ask yourself, what do I believe about Jesus? Who was he? 
who is he? Barna did a study in 2014, and they asked about Jesus. This study is almost 10 years old now. There's not been this large of a study specifically about this topic, so I'm still leaning into this one from nine years ago, even though he's been, they've asked about Jesus in other studies. I thought this was interesting. 93% of the people surveyed said that Jesus was a human. They believed that there was a guy that walked around on the earth about 2,000 years ago who, who was an actual person. And he was teaching some things, and he was doing some things that they claimed to be miracles. They believed that Jesus was a literal human being. But those same people that believe, only 43% of those people believe that he was God in human form. Only 43% believe that he was actually God. They were denying his deity. Now, this was in 2014. How many of you think the numbers have gone up? No, those probably have gone down, right? The, the way culture has progressed over the last nine or 10 years, I would say those numbers are probably much, much lower as we think about how many people actually acknowledge Jesus to be human and how many people actually acknowledge Jesus to be God. But this is not a new problem. This is not a new reality. It's not a new conversation as people have been wrestling with who Jesus was and who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis once did a series of radio broadcasts for the BBC, and later he turned many of those thoughts into the book called Mere Christianity. He says this, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being some great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have come to accept the view that he was and is God. This is titled, Lord, Lunatic, or Liar. It's often been titled that way, often called that. Or, Mad, Bad, or God. But when I read through the words of Jesus, you cannot parse his words. You can't split them up. You've got to take him at face value. You've got to believe that he is who he said he is or not. The religious leaders chose, many of them, to believe that he was not the son of God. It's one of the things that ultimately led him to the cross, if not the primary thing. But all of us, every single one of us that has ever walked the face of the earth, have to do something with the claims of Christ. This is what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his, his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Ultimately, there is not the option to not make a decision about Jesus. That's a double negative. I know the English teachers are sweating. You got to make a choice. 
And if you don't make that choice now, you're going to make that choice later. You just won't really have a choice. Because what we believe, according to the claims of Christ, is that he is the son of God. And that the name of Jesus that we've been singing about, that you reign above it all, it's the name above every name. And that there will come a day when every single person that has ever walked the face of the earth, that is on the earth now, that ever will walk the face of the earth, they will have to kneel down and bow and to declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God, the Father. It's a crossroads for all of humanity. And the people that hated Jesus hated this most about him. They used their own words to say that. John 19, verse 6 and 7. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. But the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. That's what got him killed. But he never shied away from proclaiming, this is who I am. He never watered it down or compromised it. He never softened it a little bit so that people wouldn't be offended. He was gracious and loving to those who didn't know. And he challenged those who should have known. And when you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read the rest of the New Testament, you read the prophecies of the Old Testament that point to Jesus, maybe there are other things that you think he did as he journeyed to the cross that eventually led him to that cross. But these just jumped off the page to me. That he just, he just made people uncomfortable. He still does. And he just loved people that they didn't like. And he still does. And he claimed to be the son of God. And he still does. In the world that we live in right now, these three things and others like them, these three things still disrupt people. And it's supposed to. And maybe you're sitting here today and it disrupts you and it disrupts your peace a little bit and it makes you uncomfortable and it challenges your assumptions about the religious system that you've built your life on and the kind of people that God would spend time with if you were here on the earth in human form and what are we supposed to do and how should we respond and that Jesus was a good guy and there's some good teaching and it makes us good people. But I mean, there's a lot of different ways you get to heaven. There's a lot of different ways maybe that you get to where we're all supposed to end up and but he never stopped proclaiming these truths and doing these things. So how do we respond? How do we respond today? For those that have been walking with the Lord a really, really long time, to those that are still searching for him, how do we respond? I don't have a great response for you. I just have two questions. Questions that I've been pondering all week long. They've been stirring up in my heart all week long. Here's the first. Maybe you write these down. The first question for me is, what do I actually believe about Jesus? What do I believe about Jesus? Not just what do I think about him, not do what I think I know about him, what have I been taught about him? Like deep, deep, deep down, what do I believe about Jesus? Is my faith built on anything other than Jesus as the Son of God? Unintentionally or intentionally, have I kind of built my life to strive for perfection and to try to be a good person? And all of those things are great. But do I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that he is the only way to God? What do I believe about Jesus? Here's the second question I've been asking all week of myself. How do I treat the people that Jesus loves? By the way, that's all the people. 
How do I treat the people that Jesus loves? How do I just treat all the people? The people that I like and the people that I don't like. The people that love me and the people that hate me. The people that are nice to me and the people that persecute me. How do I respond to those people? And how did Jesus respond? And as I'm trying to grow more and more into the image of Jesus, how should I respond? Like, how do I treat the people that Jesus loves? How much time am I spending with people who haven't given their lives to him yet? Who am I inviting into moments like this to offer response? Who am I waking up every morning and saying, God, if you would use me today, I'll be sensitive. And wherever I feel you're prompting, I want to share the gospel, the good news to those who haven't experienced it yet. I want to live on mission. Who am I inviting to Easter? Who am I inviting to Sunday services? Who am I praying with? Because I just feel that prompting and that urge. How do I treat the people that you love, God? Just a couple of questions for us to think about as we journey to the cross. Recognizing that Jesus journeyed there and on his way, these are the kinds of things he did. So what should we do? I'm going to ask you right where you're at just to bow your head, close your eyes. Maybe thinking about these questions and other things like them. If you would say to me today, Jeremy, for me, I am a sinner in need of a savior. Just like the Bible talks about, I've fallen short of the glory of God. I need his grace. I need his mercy. I need his forgiveness. And I've never accepted him. Or maybe I did a long time ago, but I've done my very best to run away from him. And today I want to turn to him and accept that love fully. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at? We're going to pray. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We're going to pray in just a moment. And when we do, I encourage you to pray. There's no magic formula. You just acknowledge with your words what you just acknowledged with your hand raised. God, I need you to save me and forgive my sins and to be the Lord of my life. And I believe that he will. And we'll celebrate with heaven as you make that decision. Now, if you would say to me, Jeremy, for me, beyond just salvation, I I know that there are some things that I need to allow the Lord to continue to do in my life. I need to love people better. I need to acknowledge that maybe I'm relying on other things other than Jesus as the only way to heaven. I'm not gonna ask you what that is, but if you just say, hey, there's still some work that God needs to do in me. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? Thank you so much. Tons of hands today. Let's pray together. God, we love you so much. And we thank you for the chance that we have to gather and to worship and to pray and to hear your word, to be challenged by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I thank you for the hands that were raised in this service. People that acknowledge their need for you to forgive their sins and to be the Lord of their life. That is no small thing. That's a huge thing. We believe it can change eternity for them. And so God, right now I celebrate that decision. And as they also acknowledge that right now with their own lips, they just say, God, I need you to forgive me and to be my Lord. God, we thank you that you do that. And God, we ask you to help us as a church to walk with them in their next steps in relationship with you. And God, I pray now for every hand that was just saying, hey, God, I, I need you to continue to do a work in me. As I journey towards the cross, preparing for Easter, I want to love people well. I don't want to rely on any kind of man-made system or even good things. I want to just trust in the name of Jesus Christ and his grace and his mercy. God, wherever we fall short, wherever there's still work to be done, would you continue to do that work in our lives? And God, we thank you for it. As we continue towards Easter, God, let us not get complacent. Let us not get comfortable. But God, continue to work in our hearts and work in our lives. Mold us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We'll give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.